coming up on Life is a Festival. I found this interesting development of that kind of dichotomy between the small self and the big self is that like, as I relaxed into just being me with whatever my playfulness or my fears were in in those moments on stage, I started to be more me and I was offering a lot more of myself, being much more generous in, in me. Then, interestingly, when I then went into the song, I was just clearing out and just fully grounding and like fully being this channel, having this energetic experience. And I just let the thing really pour through me and, and do what the songs are built to do. And I could really get out of the way. So I think it's meaningful because it's, uh, it's kind of true to life, isn't it? It's like we, we take this incarnation We are these bodies. We are these people. I have these tastes, these personal histories, these preferences. And and that's not to be dismissed. That's to be like honored and lived. And often in the spiritual journey, we kind of like dismiss that because we're overly deferent, overly emphasizing the divine and the infinite. And it's just interesting how, as I began to really honor this limited incarnation, then the divinity could really happen and happen more powerfully. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness— in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Well, this program has recently had its three-year anniversary. So that means we've had three years of interviewing cultural pioneers about how to integrate peak experiences into our lives and make our lives just a little bit more festive, merry, and bright. Today on the show, I am speaking with Nick Mulvey. You may be familiar with his music. Indeed, he has tens of millions of listens on Spotify, and his music seems to fit into so many different occasions. I first discovered it through the Festival Wilderness, where he was performing in 2015. Nick is an incredible musician, and he's also a deeply warm and inquisitive philosophical soul. We met in Ibiza about a year ago, and we've been planning this conversation for quite a while. So it's such an honor to get to talk to him today. And he did not disappoint, nor would I think he disappointed. And frankly, if someone had disappointed, I probably wouldn't disappoint you, dear listeners, by publishing it. But he did not only not disappoint, he absolutely inspired. And not just in music, but in his philosophical approach to living. And specifically this idea of Northern European shamanism, which popped up in a beautiful way during this conversation. This podcast flows in three parts. We start with Nick's background as a musician, from his time studying in Havana, to his experience playing hong drum with the Portico Quartet, to his beautifully embodied solo career, which many of you may know him from now. Then we get into Nick's pilgrimage to Southwest England and his time with the elder Mac McCartney. And we discuss the spiritual nourishment of Northern European indigeneity and shamanism, which is something that is of great interest to me now. 
Finally, we talk about Nick's time at COP26 and his experience as an environmental musician. Throughout the conversation, Nick drops beautiful gems that are valuable for any aspiring artist, and indeed anyone who desires to live richly, as Nick does. And he also offers some playful backstories from some of his most popular songs. So Nick is an English musician and a passionate environmentalist. He studied ethnomusicology at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, where he was a founding member of the band Portico Quartet. He released his first solo album, the Mercury Prize-nominated First Mind, in 2014, following it up three years later with Wake Up Now. His most recent album, Begin Again, explores his English roots, as we will discuss today. And now, here's my friend, and soon to be your friend, Nick Mulvey. Do you have any rituals that you do before an interview or perhaps before performing? Do you have anything that you do that kind of grounds your energy and and prepares you to, to be present? I do, actually. As of a couple of years, it's been kind of like coming together over a few years. Um, and now it's, it takes the form of just lighting a candle, taking a moment at a small altar, a very simple little altar that I've made. And in the lighting of the candle, I just take a moment to ask for guidance and inspiration from my ancestors. And it's something that I'm really interested in and becoming quite comfortable with. And I'm really happy with the idea of this ancestral connection, ancestral inspiration from a few levels, you know, from, from the idea of it just being a conversation between me and myself and my own DNA and that there can be something that can be really spoken to and spoken with on these levels of myself and I can ask for help even. I find that equally fascinating as the idea that there are external entities and they are my near or distant relatives beyond beyond the veil like it's it's all these different kind of lenses and different sort of forms of of poetry and i'm quite glad to get to this exact point so early in the uh in the in the conversation amen i think we, we've already had a conversation about where we want to go today maybe six months ago so i'm very resonant with that exact thread you know it turns out i was i was doing a ceremony for and I, I can't remember the name of it right now. It's like the Irish Day of the Dead or like the Celtic Day of the Dead. Yeah, Samhain. Samhain, Samhain. I was sitting with a Samhain ceremony and I was given a candle and I was told to light that candle at a specific time. Turns out I have it right here. <laughs> I have this candle from that ceremony. Mm. So I'm going to light it in, in honor of your practice which I have not worked with a candle in this way. I have some practices that I do, but it's literally just right in front of me. So I'm going to light this candle that I was giving to Wayne. We share some similar ancestry. So to call in my, nice. my own ancestors and the common threads between you and I and ask for their blessing and support and inspiration as you and I flow together. So what a, what a yeah, serendipitous awesome. treat. Awesome, you know, let's call in the troops and not do this alone. Oh man, we all need that. We all need the troops. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, and it's it's just becoming a very comfortable reality for me, I think. It's something I've been interested in 
since I, I don't know why or quite where it came from as a, in my mid-teens even mid-teens became interested in this idea of the ancestors and then I loved it in, in various other cultures African music would often take me there indigenous north central South America and interesting cultures from from those parts of the world and I realized I was always looking for something closer to home in, in my line and my life Oh, man, Nick, there's so much about what I'm interested in in your life and your creative process that is embedded in what you've just said, you know, from your time in Havana to your recent pilgrimage in the southwest of England. Like it's all it's, mm -hmm. it's all there right in the beginning. So with that, let me just say, Nick Mulvey, welcome to Life is a Festival. It's such an honor to have you here. Amen. Thanks, man. I'm really glad we made it. I'm really glad to be here. Happy to chat, man. So you had just mentioned that you found inspiration and connection with ancestors further afield. And you definitely carry the poetry of the seeker type, someone who voyages, someone who is exploring other things outside in the world, and then bringing that home, and then finding that in yourself. I see that thread in your music. When you were 19, you moved to Havana. And maybe that's an interesting place to just start our conversation because that to me seems like a, a major going abroad. In my country, we're not even, we weren't even allowed to go to Cuba. So for you, right. yeah, yeah we, have a, we have a weird thing with Cuba. But you went to Havana to study music and art. Why'd you choose Cuba? Yeah, it was a formative, formative time. I was young and I, it was kind of whimsical in that like a, a friend's brother had been there. And he was talking about his experience in Havana and he was talking about the time he spent at this music school on the edge of Havana called El Isa, the Institute of Higher Arts in, in Havana. And I just remember sitting there thinking, I was about 17 or something, and I was like, that's it, great, I'm going to go there. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And so a couple of years later, yeah, I went and um, yeah, it was just, it was a very formative time for me it was I remember it was a time when I I first really moved into on one level very simply it was the first time I moved I started to play the guitar every day you know to really it was an incredible surroundings I mean incredible for me anyway coming from England I grew up in Cambridge in England and so Havana was very different and very yeah that 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 novelty and that difference was, was very stimulating and it was a yeah, very special old school, you know. I mean, the school itself has, has, has an interesting history through the 20th century. It started off as a, as a quite, you know, exclusive club for the American. This is pre-revolution in the 20s and the 30s. And it was, a, it was a big country house on the edge of Havana. And then it was converted by, I, I gather Fidel Castro and Che Guevara had this vision as they, as they just after the revolution when they had uh now claimed all this property and they were they had the vision for making it turning this land into the caribbean's premier art school and of a kind they kind of went on and did that and they made this thriving art school which is like in modern day i was there yeah in, in uh, around 20, 2005 it, so in modern day, it was kind of under underfunded and under you know under kind of resourced, but it was incredibly well that the standards they kept there of, of the musicianship and of the there was kids studying music, dance, 
contemporary arts and photography and the standard was incredible. The standard was super high and they have this kind of long inter-influence with, with communist Russia as Cuba does. And so some, and a lot of that fed into the school. So they had this very high standard of like, of, of excellence within the school, which like certainly kicked my young ass into, into shape and got me playing every day. Wow. How distinctly formative for you. When I learned that you had spent that time in Havana, I was, I was quite surprised. I, I, I was introduced to your music through Wilderness Festival in 2015, which I attended and you performed and they played your song Fever to the Form. As their, their after movie, they used your song and there's that beautiful, nice. yeah. do, you, do you remember that after movie? Did you? I do, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I and I just remember at the time I was a, a festival reviewer and I just remember thinking that that was such an inspiring after movie. It just made me really feel connected to that festival. And it was so much your song. And when I, when I think of that Nick Mulvey, that's the Nick Mulvey that I have known musically. And when we became acquainted, that was really my understanding of you. I didn't even know at that point that you were a founding member of Portico Quartet and that you were playing Hong. I didn't know mm. you'd spent this time in Havana or your study of ethnomusicology. So many different mm. threads for you. And as an artist and as someone who other artists can look to and feel inspiration from, you've had this winding path where you've touched all of these different things. And now you've really come to your music that's so distinctly you. I wonder if as we're talking about this early stage of your life, do you have any advice to young artists starting out? Do you have any sort of like tidbits from your own journey looking back at your earlier life? Well, nice question. I can see and it's nice to just to sort of, as you kind of uh, run through those things there, yeah, I, I can see I had a very open approach that was kind of very motivated by a, just an appetite, a real interest and appetite in music i found but almost all music interesting i mean i wasn't interested in like music i hated or like kind of music that was felt overly just commercial but basically beyond that i found all kinds of music interesting and i and i and i just would absorb so much from so many different places and and, and centuries and locations and and then over the years, it's been a process of letting it all kind of just, yeah, settle into me. And, and, then, uh, and then how that expression comes through is never a, a question of, of a cerebral fusion of those things. It's just kind of you let it um, fuse inside yourself and then you express yourself. So that might be kind of like going towards an answer to your question about just allowing all those influences to really blend inside yourself yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I just encourage a, uh, an, an openness to, to absorbing from different places, but then a knowledge that like when you let those influences settle, whatever you offer is, is always going to be uniquely you. And I think it takes some time to become uniquely you. You know, I was a musician in my 20s. I would look at someone like mm -hmm. you and be like, oh man, I would love to be doing what he's doing. I'd love to be writing the kinds of songs that this man is writing that touch people in the way that your music does. I would love that. But what you don't see when you look at someone who's achieved what you have is like the time you spent busking. Busking to me seems like a very courageous act. 
you don't have any name. Nobody, people don't really know who you are, and you're just out there playing music. There's a great busking scene in London. What was that like for you? What was it like to like? Yeah, did it take a lot of courage to just be out there playing? Yes and no, because this was just after I've been in Cuba. I came back to the UK and enrolled in a undergraduate degree in ethnomusicology in London. So this was just an extension of the same same journey that I was on, just really interested in, in all kinds of music. And that led me to something of an academic degree, which I was never really, I'm, I'm much more an artist, but um, I loved just being immersed in all this music. And at the same time, me and a friend stumbled a, a, across two of the first 50 hang drums. So the hang drum, many of your listeners will know, is this instrument that's, that's you know, a new instrument to the 21st century. It was invented around that time, around 2001, I think, in Switzerland. And we got in there quite early. And so we had this incredible instrument. I mean, the instrument is, it looks like a UFO, like a steel pan. It's, it's a cousin of the steel pan. And it's beautifully de designed uh, and very intentionally designed to resonate in certain frequencies that open up your heart. I, I gather like that, that's the case with it. Certainly that is the experience. And I was, I was very musical, so I was playing guitar and I was beginning to write songs, but I was also like uh, always playing ha hand, hand drums, percussion of all different kinds. So when I found the hang drum, it, which is a melodic percussion instrument, I could just transfer all of my rhythmical sense and suddenly I was making this glorious melodic music. And so having this new instrument that was a breathtaking instrument that most people at that time, in fact, everyone at that time in London on the street, we used to go down to the river, the River Thames, and there's this cultural district called the South Bank. And we would go there and no one there had, had ever seen this instrument. So that got rid of the nerves a lot. That made us really playful, confident. And I always remember thinking, I wouldn't go down here with my guitar because people will walk past someone with a guitar and there I am with my vulnerable offerings and it would be crushing. And here I was with this cool, like UFO weird instrument and it was novel and we were on a roll basically. And that was the origins of Portico Quartet. This is a really interesting thread that I think is going to come up a lot in the conversation. This idea of vulnerability and potentially a mask to, to allow one to feel safe in, in giving art. So a mask could be a persona. There's so many artists and particularly aspiring artists who have like a persona. In a sense, maybe the Hong was kind of a mask in that moment. As you just said, you wouldn't go with your guitar, but you had this instrument that already people would come to the instrument and they'd see the instrument. So in a sense, that protects the vulnerability. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it gave us an instant identity. It's another word for the, for a mask. And again, kind of giving us strength or protecting the vulnerability was like brotherhood. We were four really good friends. We were in student halls of residence, but then we all moved together in a house pretty soon. And we 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 just, yeah, totally supported each other. And, and we just loved what we were doing. And we knew we were onto something that every small move we made, like just gave us a small mini triumph that kind of helped us go to the next one. And And we also loved deeply just loved our music you know between the four of us we just had this like great meeting point of all this music we loved and to speak to your earlier point about um the time it takes to get to know yourself and express yourself as a unique you i, I can really see that point in, in case with us as a young band because naturally i think like everyone starting out we started with a wholesome appetite for imitation 
And I remember we used to have these tracks where it was like, okay, now the Radiohead bit, and then now the John Coltrane bit, and now the, the Philip Glass bit. And, you know, between Philip Glass and Steve Reich, those kind of minimalist, repetitive, hypnotic, modern classical composers, John Coltrane and so many jazz artists that we just loved. And then a whole world of African music, Ali Farkatore, Timana Jabate, and those West African greats. And then Radiohead pushing all the envelopes. That's just like a, just a little slice of all the music. Behind those bands was then like loads of other stuff in each genre that we loved. But, and we were so imitative and, and patchwork. And, that's, and, and it was just like, we were also just so green and really having fun. And so we just did it. We had a great attitude, I think in the beginning and then yeah we had a great appetite it was just like we're up for anything we do it all and we just were so focused on, on the music and, and, and just making ourselves feel great with it so what I'm hearing is this incredible experimental attitude towards life and just like soaking up everything around you the names that you're referencing these West African greats these different artists of different genres and you talked about you know as as a green musician there's an imitation piece which i think is very important i think it's really important to to imitate for a while as you're getting started and feel out how others play what's the jump between that imitative art how did that kind of coalesce into the unique and and still quite a, extremely eclectic sound of portico quartet was there a moment where you felt kind of a jump where you were like ooh like this is new. This is something that's fresh. Oh, well, it's going back a bit. And I, but I, I think it's fair to say that I don't think it happens in a jump. It's very much more an incremental step. And so, you know, we just made a whole bunch of first compositions and then, yeah, they became our next round of comp compositions. But it was pretty much that, you know, probably that stage that, that became our first album. I mean, before that, we were like making these little recordings however we could. We all lived together. We we took one of our Saturday earnings from busking and we put it in. We invested in a CD burning tower. This was back then, like a a tower. You don't see them so much anymore. Like a tower that has ten CD inputs. You know, CD trays, and then you have your master one at the top, and then you can be at home burning your CDs on mass. You know, and so then and then we we like made a bit of artwork and we got our like our stamp and our little plastic wallets and then we lived together and on Friday nights we'd get a beer in and we'd sit at home and we'd just press up 200 copies of our little EP and then we'd go shifting for a fiver on the South Bank and with the, the power of of, of the, the hang drum that we had and then also like the fresh ideas we had mixing all this stuff and we were all good players particularly the double bassists and the saxophonists were really good players they were of a, a different standard in a way and so so this thing was like moving and, and, we, and we were like we were more cash rich doing that than we were after we signed our first record deal and everything came from 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 that kind of very homemade handcrafted beginning and then it was some we were still at university when we recorded our first album and then we put it out just after we finished and that got then nominated for the mercury prize which was that was a step up not so much an answer to your question which is a more internal artistic one of, of how do you grow into your own voice this was more of a sort of like, okay, what is it to make music and what is the music industry and, and, and other things like a, like a journey in success and a journey, an exciting journey in, in following this thing. Definitely took a, a, a notable step up with the, that was 2008, the Mercury Prize. Have you heard the Ira Glass quote about the gap? 
it's quite a popular quote about the, about the creative life. And I should have it memorized because I reference a, a lot, but it's Ira Glass, of course, who's one of our most esteemed voices. And he talks about how when you get into the game of creative work, you've got this exquisite taste. Your taste is impeccable. And then it takes a while for you to be able to produce something that is to your satisfaction. And a lot of people give up. But there's this gap the gap between your taste and your sensibilities and what you really want to produce. And that gap mm. takes work. It's just mm. the, the creative work. And so I think a lot about that, you know, for me as a podcaster, for, for those listening, whether you're, however your creative pursuits are, whatever your output is, there's, there is a gap and that gap is filled with work. However, if you want to fill that gap with work, the best way to do that is to create a full, exciting life of that work. You've referenced brotherhood. You talk about this CD-burning tower and hawking these EPs for five bucks or five pounds. You don't have bucks where you are. But this experience of camaraderie and joy and playfulness in the process of playing and playing and writing and iterating and learning. You said it's not a jump, that it's an iterative process, that you're finding your voice. And I think that maybe for people who are listening, who have their own artistic pursuits, constructing a life where you can be doing that work in an iterative, continual process, in camaraderie, in a vibe, I think that that's really the key. What do you think in terms of like how you get enough output that you're starting to really have the skill and the, and the ear for, for what you most want to give to the world? Yeah, I'm sure that's essential to to create play and you know because when you're playing you're 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 instantly rewarding yourself with something that you might hope to get down the line you know so it's already very fulfilling and then you know I was lucky that I just I loved I love music it, it never felt like work and I and I was always particularly with the guitar and how my guitar playing developed I was always just able to pour myself into it and I, I played quite a lot of piano before that and quite a lot of drums before that. And I remember feeling these threads weaving into how I was approaching the guitar. So I was already yeah, developing quickly and it wasn't too frustrating. But then, yeah, it was always um, always something I loved. So yeah, it never felt too much, too hard. Okay, so let's talk about the guitar. I've heard you speak about the guitar as a heart chakra resonance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and and so here's where we're going to get into like the Nick Mulvey solo stuff, because you've got this guitar, and you're playing medicine music. If you let a Spotify medicine music playlist go for a while, Nick Mulvey pops up. If you go to like a yoga studio, you're going to get some Nick Mulvey. You write medicine music, and I and I've been thinking a lot about that you do that, and a huge part of what I want to talk to you about today is how you do that how you write music that resonates in that frequency. And then in preparation for this podcast, I was listening to you talking about the guitar and how the guitar resonates with your heart. Mm. And so I'd love for that exploration to be a jumping off point into this transition into your solo work. And you really, in this singer-songwriter, in, in my opinion, in a very like English tradition with a lot of connection to like English folk music, but also with all of this resonance that to me really is categorized as medicine music. Yeah. Well, to start with the uh with those categories or where the the algorithms work and, and and we'll get to the more embodied 
origins of the music, but um, I'm grateful for any any way that my music is being played and 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 definitely yeah i'm happy i'm happy how it reaches people's ears there's a personal there's a personal point where i want to like as soon as you say that i want to immediately like transcend and even smash those those genres you know because i i yeah i think i i have i don't really recognize medicine music it depends what we mean certainly people often talk about conscious music and I always feel like I don't relate to that term and, I, and and isn't Bruce Springsteen medicine music? Okay, sometimes if we're talking about medicine music, there can be this, this subgenre of music inspired by Central South American music and has a, a, a relation to plant medicine ceremonies or to meditative states and and that's there's a lot of interesting things within that. But I... I also recognize that those those terms also allow for a very low standard of music. Mm. People are much more willing to accept poorer qualities when something's spiritual. Mm. I I find. And I and I I relate to I think Lauren Hill's medicine music. I think I believe in good music or not. And um Nina Simone for sure is medicine music and highly conscious music and so I I regard myself as as just just trying to be a good musician. And then, yeah, I do. That said, I make music in certain ways, and and I and I love the things I love, and and they that that feeds the music I make. Making music is a is a very felt process. It's a, it's a felt process almost all the way for me, and and I think that's probably the case for for many and most. Some people think about what music they want to make, and they maybe have a bit more of a cerebral approach and an agenda. For me. There is a role for for my thoughts and my mind and my intentions, but mostly it's like a, a process of discovery that is 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 embodied. It comes from the body and 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 comes through my body. And and so I do remember actually when we were we were walking together, weren't we? And, and we uh, we got talking about the guitar, and and I think I was reminiscing about how the longer I play, the more simple my observations become with the guitar you know like it took me ages just to see that the guitar is a resonating box i play acoustic i play various guitars these days but the acoustic guitar is a resonating box that of course is pressed up to my chest to my feeling center to the front of my body i understand as, as very much where all the feelings are happening from 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 the bass through the sex up through the, the belly through the heart up to the throat and my guitar is placed right in the middle there on on, on my heart and then there are these strings going across the sound hole through which I feed information. It's a felt mathematics. And I, I, I feed that information. This will be me at home on a, on a Saturday morning when the kids are out and I've got a bit of time and I'll be playing at home. And I'll be kind of like half with my fingers playing and half just thinking about whatever, noodling. And then like that information, of course, is, is, is going into my body. And it's not going through my mind. It's not, it's not a cerebral thing. It's, it's a fundamentally like going straight into my body. It's like, okay, that's interesting. It goes straight into my, into my feeling center. And then I'll, I'll be kind of half paying attention until I do something, a little pattern. I'm a patterns guy. So it's, it's, it's somewhere underneath. Everything is, is this voracious appetite for pattern recognition and how patterns work. And, and, and it's, it takes me so far. And I'll do a small pattern and the, and the pattern will basically give me a feeling and and then then I'll kind of hone in on that and I'm re recognize that what I'm doing is I'm really kind of actually using this box to 
basically open my heart. We only hear that kind of language in a kind of quite sort of mushy way. And then here it is, like, and I'm just realizing that is literally what I'm doing. I'm, I'm literally like playing the instrument to bring up this feeling and bring out this feeling, you know, then I'll just go in and, and, and expand the feeling. And then the process continues from there, you know, and, and that's about how then the, the, the certain lines within, within that guitar patterns will then pr prompt within me the vocal lines. I'll start humming the bits that the voice is going to do. And, and that starts to then form into like lines and phrases. And then from phrases comes kind of words-ish or sort of, phrases and and then i might I, I try and go as far as i can and indeed i want to go further into language following still just this felt pathway of course the mind comes in at this point and and i start to think about what i want to say or what i've been what i what was maybe some some great lines i heard in conversation recently or you know and i start kind of quote writing a song but uh yeah, it's a felt thing, and and and, and it's 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 from the body. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love all of that, and I love this distinction about medicine music. This is a perfect time for me to bring in my favorite line of yours, because it's that felt sense, that embodiment, that resonance, and then the lyrics. Some of them get you, and there's one particular moment in one of your songs. A little while before you and I met, I was in an ashram in southern Portugal, and I was totally brokenhearted. And I was out in the garden with my, my ear pods in, and I was listening to one of your songs. And I was just crying. I was just weeping, Nick. And it was... Yes, man. I, I was weeping, and it's this line and in your hands, until I looked inside my aching heart and found a hive of honeybees making honey from my darkness, making gold from my disease. There are certain lyrics that you hear where in that moment in your life, you just needed that message. And for me, this idea that there were like honeybees making honey in my heart, like there's so much pain, but there's a process that's happening. And then the idea that that process is being stewarded by honeybees, by these, yeah. uh, you know, these honeybees. And and I just remember just feeling so deeply. I think for a lot of our mm. listeners, a lot of people who are fans of your music, they have moments in songs of yours like that. These extremely poignant, poetic moments that, that as you talk about the guitar connecting the heart, the lyrics, even though the mind comes in to form them and to kind of bring structure to them, they're functioning the same way. And they're functioning, in, in my estimation, and, and I think all great music does this, certainly. But there's a connection between your heart and in this case, my heart. And we hadn't met and I didn't know that we would meet at the time that I was listening. But you have so many, there's people in your audience who are singing out the honeybee line to you. They're singing it right back. And, yeah. and it's such a beautiful process. So that moment where the mind comes in to form the words, I guess there's no say, there's, how do you ask where those words come from? But I guess I'll just be audacious and say, Nick, where did those words come from? <laughs> People love that line, and I love that line, and I think it, it hits a few chords, it hits a few notes, and I think one of the reasons that it works is it, is, it, is it just surprises when the image is a surprising one the first time you hear it, but it's a beautiful one to find, and, and there's something about there's, there's something maybe the energy of the bees, and we love bees, and, and there's also a, a, an element of the fact that the bees are, have been very symbolic of, of biodiversity decline and, and how we feel about 
about the natural world and, and it presses a button basically and, it's, and it's, it presses a few buttons at once, I think, that line. I'm trying to recall that one. I, I don't remember exactly that line and that, that one, how, how it came to be. I, I remember loving it and being very happy with it. I can remember more the beginning and the previous couplet, a vicious craving in my bones. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that came from, from Buddhism. From, from, I was on a walk. I was on a, on a, on a walk in, uh, I feel kind of funny saying, I don't know why I should, but I was up in the Himalayas in, in Bhutan. And I was blessed to be there. I was, the friends of mine organized this festival. It was the first festival of its kind in Bhutan as, as, it, as it experimented with opening up its, its borders. And it was a festival for the king's birthday. And it was a you know, larger than life invitation to, to, to say a very easy yes to. And I was up in Bhutan and I remember being on this walk and there were these small phrases on the walk. Um, and one of them talks about a vicious craving. It's a Buddhist description of, of desire and the mind. And I'd read it somewhere else before and I just thought like vicious craving, I have to get that. That's so good. Sing it sweetly, but talk about vicious craving, but in, in dulcet tones. And I'm always trying to find these like, this, this sweet spot between pain and joy. And so much of the music I loved, even before I knew anything about anything, like as a kid, I recognize now, I look back at it and I think, yeah, it had this kind of sweet spot between pain and joy. And a lot of African music often has that sort of nostalgic, full of, full of joy, but also like the, the sense that like you can't hold on to any of it. It's all, it's, you love it so much and it, it's not, you can't keep it. It's, uh, it's, something, it's, got, it's something very alive about it because it, it describes, I think, very, the nature of impermanence and something very deep about, how, about the beauty of every day and, uh, and our lives. And, and so I'm always looking for that with the music and that vicious craving line is, is an example of that sung in, in, a, in a sweet melody. A vicious craving in my bones and needing was burning in my mind and it kept me one step away from something I could not find. Yeah, that's interesting because I, it kept me one step away from, and then for ages I tried to write the thing that this craving kept me away from. And I was like, you know, obviously peace, happiness, fulfillment. And then in the end, I was just like, the line is better if I say, and it kept me one step away from something I could not find because that's the point. I couldn't find it until I looked inside my aching, aching heart and saw a hive of honeybees making honey from my darkness, gold from my disease. It's one of those lines I'm... Um, I don't know where that came from, man. Yeah. Well, I love I love that we got this vicious craving piece. And again, in in preparing for this interview, I, I heard you speaking about how it's been a newer thing, sort of later in your career, to start telling the stories of these songs. And that wasn't something that you mm. were doing earlier. And I saw you recently in Ibiza, and I remember you were doing some of that specifically with the new album and this pilgrimage to Southwest England. And you're opening up a little mm. bit about that. And I love hearing you in that lyrical state where you're talking about the songs. I think it's a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful piece in a show. And in that, you know, you've done this new album and this new album in part came out of a pilgrimage. So, so just to kind of set this up for, for our listeners, you had soaked in all of this different influence around the world, studied this different music. You'd stepped into uh, your solo career, had some big success there. As we've mentioned, this, the, the Spotify algorithms have been kind to you. And I think in a, in a deserved way, people have referenced to me that's like, oh yeah, I, I've, on Spotify suggested him and now I just listen to his music all the time. So you're, so you're really out there 
you're performing at festivals. I mentioned wilderness. You're producing all of this work. And then there came to be a time when you felt like you needed to go home. You needed to go back to your roots and that you actually characterize that as a pilgrimage. And so I love this image of this kind of like international rock star energy of like playing a festival in Bhutan, living in Ibiza, creating all this music with different influences and different connections. And then there's something that called you to go to England and really connect with your roots. So I'm curious about that evolution for you as an artist and for you as a spiritual being. At what point did England call you home? Yeah, I mean, it's been, I think, most kind of present for me in in the last couple of years in a way, having moved to live in Ibiza. And I think one of the things that's done is really helped me understand how deeply I belong in the UK, to the land there, to to this to the people, the friends, family, my culture, and the land and, and the rivers and the animals and the trees. I really feel it. And um and it's through being away. And and, and being away won't be forever for me, but it and it's it's not always easy in fact, because because I do really miss those those things. But um it's good. To, it's so good to miss them. It's I, I feel them, I see them, I understand them deeper. And it goes back. I mean, it's it goes back sort of consciously being very connected to the land there. Yeah, to my you know a few years to my twenties and how much I love the English landscape and and but it follows another path. Yeah, with these new songs, really. I'm releasing an album next year. We'll be putting music out from January, and there's a there's a thread that runs through it, which is totally grown in the soil in, in in this English landscape even though funnily enough with the contradiction of the fact that actually like I've been in uh, in Ibiza I, I've written the album between the two it, the album was written a lot in in the UK as well and what's happening is is that something shamanic is coming up through the music and it's something I'm, I'm just I'm just like so happy about and that for me is interesting because so simply put, and this is probably too simple, but over the years I was drawn to these ideas from, you know, that, that actually are beyond place and beyond time, ideas of awareness, and not ideas even, are they? Self-knowledge, deeper self-knowledge, stemming from sort of like, you know, own, my own personal kind of insights and moments of understanding, okay, my mind, my body and the world, it all arises within awareness, doesn't it? And once you sort of like start to get that, it, you can't go back. And maybe that's what people talk about waking up and there's ever degrees of waking up and I'm, I'm asleep in the moments I'm asleep and I'm awake in the moments I'm awake is, 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 is the truth of it. But just that kind of, those kind of things, they led me in my songwriting when it would happen naturally, as I say, bubbling up from the felt process. But then I would choose to sing about th- certain things and, and, and it would often be about that. It would be about deeper self-knowledge and, and I... I'm, I'm, I'm resisting saying the words Eastern ideas because, of course, like that's a very limited way of describing it. That it's beyond place. But the point of saying this is that those things were inspiring me for several albums and, and many years, and, and they're most explicit in, in my second record, Wake Up Now. And, and what's now really accompanying that is this kind of more earthed, shamanic themes that are really coming up and that's connected with this deeper dive uh, as where we began... Uh, in, in, uh, talking about ancestry, deeper dive into into literally connecting with my ancestors. What is that? Getting a grasp of that, getting a handle of that. 
and then like yeah a magical journey really like quite quite kind of extraordinary journeys into sort of really interfacing with energies that i find hard to explain and dancing with them and letting them use me and this album is is a is is alive with this with this energy and and it's it's a really interesting place to go and an interesting place to be in and it's much more home for me than 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 just singing about non-duality and 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 things like that it's it feels i can't tell you how happy i am to be striking this more shamanic chord and that the shamanism isn't borrowed from south america isn't borrowed from anywhere else you know it's 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 totally it's about that and lord knows it's time there's a desperate relevance to, to this in terms of as northern europeans being interested in like what was interrupted what was disconnected why don't we connect with our lands and our ancestry and what burning relevance does that have to the crisis that we find ourselves in on planet earth at the moment those are questions to really unpack for all of us i think oh i love that and here we are in the meat of it here we are right in yes. it and where you are right now and what I found so inspiring on our walk and some of the ways you've described this. Let's talk about Mac McCartney. Um, yes. Let's talk about Mac McCartney. Can Perfect. you tell us who Mac McCartney is and the role that he played in this deepening connection to England and to your ancestry? Sure. Mac McCartney is an, an elder from the UK. I think he laughed when I said that and he said, well, I am elderly. That's what he said. <laughs> That's but very I, English. That's a I, very English response. <laughs> he's very humble, you know, yeah. But he is a teacher from the UK and he he himself was mentored through the 70s and 80s and his, his own journey has got a lifetime of threads to it. But the ones I, I, I understand that he's told me about was mentorship with with a mix of different indigenous North American First Nation people, communities. And he really received like true mentorship from them and, and indeed like instruction, profound instruction from them to go and do the work that he's been doing for decades now in the UK, which is about like teaching leadership, um, mentoring in various ways, teaching about sacred reciprocity with our land. His elders instructed him, his mentors instructed him to set up the retreat center that he runs in in devon called embercombe I, re I recommend anyone to to investigate embercombe he calls it embercombe because it's like an ember like our belonging to our land and our indigenous connection has been the fire has been killed nearly but not fully there's an ember and his act of creating embercombe is to blow on that ember to rekindle this fire of, of what it means to belong to our landscape to care for our streams to 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 understand our animals as totemic and shamanic and so yeah mac built that retreat center and then he wrote several books but one of them is called the children's fire and i'm talking about it a fair bit these days so the children's fire was a game changer for me to to to, to, to read and lots of my friends lots of my networks in the uk because mac published that book in 2018 i think and I, I, I didn't, I knew of his retreat center, but I'd never heard much about him when I went, I was still living in the UK and I went to this, uh, my friend was putting on this night I, and it was his book launch. I didn't know exactly. And there was a room full of people. I was the last one at the back. And within 10 minutes I was weeping because like, I just needed to hear exactly what he was offering. And it was this kind of like full power turning and facing and talking about 
the decimation of our landscape and our animals and our, and our biodiversity and our 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 land and the poisoning of our land, but also like he has this key understanding of 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 some of the origins of all this mess. Like it's so big and so vast that we go we can't hardly dare ask ourselves like what happened, Amen. And he he talks a lot about. He goes right back to the Romans, really. And he looks, he talks about our, how important it is for us to have a, a, an understanding and then from an understanding, even a felt connection with our pre-Roman indigenous culture as Northern Europeans. And that's mainly the Celts. There was lots going on back then, but mainly the Celtic culture. Matt McCartney teaches that the Celtic culture, the British Isles, and possibly it's also true of, of, of Holland and, you know, it goes on. And it might not just be the British Isles, but he, he describes it as, as, as being better understood as being more like how we view a modern day Tibet. We view the modern day Tibet or, or certainly Tibet in the last century as a, as a shining jewel of, of spiritual sophistication, you know, on the earth with all of its developed institutions of like the technologies of prayer and, 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 and way beyond. And it was like the Romans who, who dominated and decimated the Celtic culture have have intentionally ensured that we have a very impover impoverished understanding of our indigenous origins. And, and, I, and yeah. And so, so it was the shining jewel and, and it's for something for us to really, to, it, 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 it's, there's many threads to this moment and to this crisis and, and what happens as we go forward. But one of them for sure is this piece around, around fast as we can really with it, with an urgency to, 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 to really, begin to understand our Celtic, our indigenous origins and what it means and how we can connect again with our landscape. Nick, this is medicine to me in this moment. You know, my ancestors are from the British Isles. By way of Australia, mm. my father's Australian. So there's that flinging people all around the world, American on one side, Australian, but all the way back, British Isles. And in America, I am a white person which is a whole strange kind of erasure to create a kind of dominance. Like you erase an identity and become sort of white. And that whiteness is then this thing. I mean, it, it exists throughout mm. the world. In the US, it's a very particular version of it because mm. whiteness was sort of how the United States came to be. Was, it was a homogenizing force from different groups of Northern Europeans and then it included Southern Europeans, and then it included, most recently, Jewish people have now been considered white when they weren't before. It's this strange homogenizing force that eradicates our lineage, our past, where we're from, and kind of places us in this kind of late-stage capitalist, industrial kind of machine that we're all part of without a connection to our indigeneity. Uh, Robin Wall Kimmer in mm. Braiding Sweetgrass which is such a lovely book and I think just the most exquisite piece of poetry and resonance. But she talks about indigeneity and connecting to our indigeneity. So for me as an American, indigeneity seems so far away, but yet I should read McCartney's book as well. I need to get back to my pre-Roman origins. And, and I think for the listener, I, I would say the majority of folks listening to this podcast were displaced in some form or another. Whether they were displaced within the, the thread of the oppressor groups moving around the world, or they were displaced through oppression, or as so often the case, some strange combination mm -hmm. of the two. Yeah. 
getting back to our indigeneity. So with your studying with Mac McCartney and also with your music now, how are you assisting in this kind of reconnection to indigeneity and how important that is in the context of this global climate crisis? I was lucky enough to spend some time with Mac just before the pandemic. And um, I had this vision of a piece. It was growing inside me, this, this, this piece that became a song of mine called Begin Again, which I, I released during the pandemic. And I had this, I'd had this own, my own personal journey with connecting with my mother's mother, Mary, who was died before I was born. And I was, it was a very cathartic emotional experience. I couldn't really explain it. And I just knew enough to kind of allow it. And I found myself connecting with, with my mother's mother, uh, my grandmother, who, who I never knew. And um, it led me on this journey and all these lyrics started to bubble up because my sister's called Mary as well after her. So Mary was my mother's mother and my sister too. There's rain in the river. There's a river running through to the sea around these islands crying tears of sorrow and pain. There's rain in the river and there's a river in my veins. Mary, young as we may be, you know the blood in you and me is as old as blood can be. I had about that far and then I went to see Matt McCartney. So I knew it was about like, I was going to make this piece that was about coming from me and my lineage and this reconnection with my grandmother, but I wanted it to be interwoven with the tissues of the land. So this idea of the rivers and there's, there's rain in the rivers, there's rivers in my veins, just to see, just to see us to, to kind of paint this tumbling lines of imagery that, 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 that place us back in the, in the landscape with the rain in our veins and, and, and us in the landscape and, and then, you know, Mac loved that. And, and he, our conversations really, um, really inspired me. And, and he was talking about like, one thing I remember him saying was, you know, as, with, with respect for kind of global shamanic culture and it playing a role, he, he, he kind of said like, but, you know, whenever I'm in Northern Europe and I hear people talking about the hummingbird or the black panther, I just hear the rabbit walk away. And I hear the falcon just fly away, like I'm unneeded, I'm I'm un, uncared for. I'm just just yeah, just I hear our our foxes and our badgers just kind of just walk off, and it just like just like daggers in my belly. It was daggers in my heart. It was like, and it really like challenged me. Like he didn't challenge me any more than that, but it challenged me of just like, can I? First of all, can I re- view? Can I regard our animals as totemic and shamanic? And, and, and how much I'd like to do that, like how this deep longing, you know, as Max said to me, you know, he says our, our, our streams are longing to be connected with. Our soil is like begging to be loved again and to be like, you know, the indigenous communities, indigenous people from around the world have, have this crucial offering right now in this time, right? As... 6% of the global population, of the, you know, the global population... Indigenous peoples are the guardians of something like 85% of the remaining wilderness on planet Earth, which, which places, places them at this like crucial, pivotal kind of point, that, you know. And, and, and that's just the beginning, you know. The, the, so often, these lesser interrupted continuums, let's call it that, sometimes they're uninterrupted continuums and usually it's a question of being lesser interrupted continuums 
with the understanding that all of us in the developed world in the industrialized world live in an interrupted continuum like how we are living now is very shallow it's it's 2000 years old it's 500 years old it's it's 20 years old in some you know and there are people on the earth who are still living or are in touch with ways of still living that are 400,000 years old or forgive me i'm going to mess up the numbers here at least 80,000 years old 40,000 years old which we can call a, 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 a you know a lesser interrupted continuum and 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 there's so much to learn you know and 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 all of this exciting new energy and this, this desperate urgency we need to learn learn from these these people and protect these these cultures and and support them in in their roles right now it's not a retrograde regressive archaic view it's to be combined with our f- technologies and and it's it's a it's a vibrantly like present moment forward looking invitation so i'm saying a few things at once here but like i'm very inspired by indigenous cultures always have been and just just you know with a great reverence for the magnificence i see in, in, in often in these cultures um and that that led me on a wide ranging search that's taken me into this journey into into my own heritage and my own land and that led me to mac and then these songs and and so then this album that was just the beginning and then 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 stuff happened started to happen that i wasn't I, I could never have seen coming like learning from a mentor is, is it was is remarkable and i'm very grateful to mac for those moments but then well yeah then things just start getting larger than life like i don't know if i can go into an anecdote i think i will amen i'd, I'd um, like you to please do okay good green light so Max book, The Children's Fire, moved me a lot. I bought 15 copies of it. It's one of those books and gave it, gave it around. And um, at the very last page of this book, he recommends another book. Max book, The Children's Fire, it, you know, goes into this into our Celtic origins, as, as I've said. And at, at the second to last page, Max says, "If you want to keep learning about this time, this culture, this pre-Roman, indigenous, Northern European culture." then I recommend a series of books called the Boudicca series written by an author called Manda Scott. And uh, that was the second to last page. I was on holiday in Morocco, in fact. Um, This is 2019. And I finished the book and I had loads of copies at home and I I just thought to myself, as I read that last page, second to last page, I thought to myself, I really want to read that book he's just recommended, the Boudicca series by Manda Scott. Like on loads of levels. Uh, I really want to read this book to look to keep learning more and and not factually but kind of through an artistic through a novel it takes you almost through a portal into that time like she's conjured up and described that world and I really wanted to taste it and feel it and go there um and we were in the desert in Morocco which is significant for this story we were far away from anything I knew and it was just a holiday and it was it was it was there in this little hotel that I finished that book and I there was a little bookshelf where you could take and give you know, give and take bookshelf. And I finished Mac's book thinking, I really want to read that other book. And I go to that bookshelf. And as I put on this copy of Matt McCartney's The Children's Fire, I see right next to it, right there, is Dreaming the Eagle, volume one of the Boudicca series by Amanda Scott. And like, it's a celebrated series of books, but it's not just like on every bookshelf. And like, make of that what you will. Like, I, 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 I give up the word coincidence. I feel I'm in collaboration and uh, I felt like goosebumps, you know, and I felt this vibrancy and this, this, this just the craziness of that, uh, of that um, synchronicity. And then, and then indeed, like, 
during the next year and through the pandemic, as I was writing this album, like literally that book had gems and jewels for me, like that have really influenced this music and taught me all about this island off the north coast of Wales called Mona, which is nowadays, sorry, it used to be called Mona. Nowadays it's called Anglesey, but um, it's called Mona. And Mona was the jewel in the crown of 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 the uh, Celtic culture. The, all the islands are sacred, but this little one off the north coast of Wales was like such a sacred place and it's where they had their institutions of dreaming technology institutions of dreaming technology you know that's the kind of thing we're talking about here like we we don't have to just randomly dream and then half remember it like you we could use our dreams and they can be a technology um and so then all this stuff started to bubble through me about mona and about these songs started to come through um and one of them is called the shores of mona and uh, it's fully alive with, with, with all of this something that's coming together as a kind of transmission, I think. This Institute for Dreaming Technology. I mean, yeah, life is just so full of just these lots of tiny little coincidences or serendipities, big ones, just signs and threads. And I think it's important not to wrap those into an egoic personal narrative. You can get a little messianic if you if you say it, that all these signs are just special for me, rather than seeing that that there's this beautiful mosaic of, of signs for everyone and we're all kind of interwoven. Nice, yeah. Uh, but it's funny, I'm, I'm actually particularly interested in lucid dreaming in this moment. And so it's interesting that you bring that up. And you were just now, you're like, we don't have to have these half-remembered dreams. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I have so many half-remembered dreams, which is both a literal experience, but it's also exactly what we're talking about. The half-remembered dreams of our ancestry, the half-remembered mm. dreams that we can wake ourselves to not only remembering them, but living them, living within them like a lucid dream. So there's kind of this really beautiful metaphor in that. This school for, for dreaming technology, what, what remains of that, of that thread? What did you learn about this? Because I'm, I'm interested. And what, what techn- are there, is on, there still availability of that technology in any way? I mean, on, on that point, I'm, I'm, I've not got a huge amount more to say. It, it totally wet my appetite and lit my imagination. I don't know a huge amount about what, what those schools were, but I know that Manda Scott, the author, does because she has received this training herself. It, it exists. And if I, if I understand it correctly, Manda Scott used a lot of that dreaming technology to create the Boudicca series. You know, you could say that like any deep work of, of writing a novel is a kind of act of creating a portal because you kind of go into their worlds if it's a crime novel written in new york or or you know a novel written in ancient britain They're, they are kind of portals you could say you know um but yeah i mean i was connected with with manda scott it's been part of the breadcrumbs of this journey someone played her an early demo of this track and, and she heard about it and we got on a zoom just before cop 26 and she just said to me you know she looked me in the eye as in like into the camera on the on the laptop and straight through the zoom into my eye i felt her connection with me and she said to me nick you have to go to glasgow to the global summit the climate change conference and sing the shores of mona at the summit you have to do that that's what you have to do and it was a very charged invitation and and that was just before just before the cop 26 and um 
I heard this. I'm trying to think that I hear it from her. I don't think so. I think someone else told me that she was already an acclaimed writer and obviously deep in her journey in, in, in this, this understanding our Celtic origins. And she was on a walk. I think she lived somewhere in um, maybe Shropshire in England, in the middle of England. And she was on a walk in the countryside and where she lives. And she turned a corner in amongst these, this bracken, the, 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 the ferns, you know, this ancient plant. She's, there's a pathway she's walking through. And there, there was a, a predator had obviously flown away or, or scurried off. You didn't know if it was a hawk or if it was a badger, but the kill was lying in the middle of the path and it was a dead hare. And the hare is a very profound animal, I gather. And the belly of this hare had been sliced open by the predator and out of the belly was, 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 was the embryo of a baby hare. And as she saw this embryo of this baby hare, like whoosh, in one go, she got the blueprint of this book. And then the writing of the book was just the unpacking of this blueprint. And I think I love that. I gather that's the case. I would like to, I haven't fact checked that by Manda, but I heard this. And I'm just like thrilled by those kind of stories. And I'm thrilled by this story because like we don't know the half of it. And our rational material perspective which is rapidly evolving, I'd say, as a, as a, as a, as, as industrialized people, and you know, but but the rational material perspective, which has been dominant for so long, which has given us wonderful things like medicine and all kinds of advances in the world, you know, it is its time is up, and 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 it, it has all of the all of the deep problems of of reducing our relationship to the land, to to the earth that we are living as seeing it only as resources to extract and and all of that loss of the sacred. And, and like, we're living through the return of the sacred. I'm damn sure like we are. And, and, and then, and the wonder opens up, what are animals and what, what are they capable of and what can happen with them? And a story like that, where like the blueprint of an ancestral story could come through the split belly of a hare with the embryo. That's like, it's so shamanic. And it so lifts the lid, begins to lift the lid on, on like, on on what's going on and what's possible. And I, I just find major inspiration in, in that. Oh wow, wow. Well, and we need that inspiration, particularly when we're looking at something like COP twenty six. And COP twenty six, of course, happened in Britain. And yeah, just just last week it finished. Just last week. And for many, it was a very discouraging experience, uh, observing those who are to be the leaders of the modern world, unable to come to any agreement, unable to make any changes in a year where the impact of the climate crisis have been felt not just in the least privileged places in the world, but in, you know, flooding in, in industrial Germany, there's, you know, it's everywhere. You can, the fires in California, like it's everywhere, everywhere. And yet COP26 was kind of this pageantry of not really being able to solve the problem, not being, or not even really being able to coordinate to, to solve the problem. And so here you are an artist, a musician going to this event to sing. I've been thinking about this for the past week in in kind of preparation for this conversation. And I was thinking about the heritage of kind of protest music in like the 60s and 70s 
And nice. there was there was a sense of obviously I was not around then, you were not around then, but but an idea that songs can change the world and that music mm. and art can change the world. And when you're looking at like the civil rights movement and that time period, the way that people communicated through song does seem like it really shifted perspective in a certain way. And it seems like now in this moment, the perspective that we need shifted on a global scale is really down to how we relate to the earth. And so there you are, this musician who's been instructed, indeed shamanically, to go to this summit to perform this song. I'm curious how you feel about that journey against the backdrop of this painful ineffectiveness of our world leaders. You as an artist, how do you relate to helping facilitate the change and you're and you're known as an as an environmentalist you know you released a vinyl record made from recycled ocean plastic like there's there's different ways in which you're you're telling this story so let's talk a little about about you at cop 26 and how you went there and what you believe after having that experience nice yeah nice man i'm glad in the formation of this question you mentioned the protest songs and uh, and 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 that idea because I took a lot of inspiration. This is this is looking back for a second before f- looking forward. Um, like a lot of us, I was very touched and 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 like and more uh, very moved by what unfolded at Standing Rock in 2016 in North Dakota and the the whole happening there with the pipeline being being built and, and and the indigenous presence and the environmental presence and it's something as Europeans we don't often appreciate that's, that's quite commonplace as north uh, in North America and in other parts of our at the at the front line of of the climate fights you have this indigenous presence I heard Naomi Klein point that out as something that often Europeans don't appreciate and that, and I was certainly one of them I thought that was, that was interesting because with the indigenous presence comes the idea of sacred activism comes the idea of 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 what that means, not just protest, but but the idea of sacred activism. And they drew this distinction at Standing Rock. They're not protesters, they're protectors. And because a protector isn't against anything, I'm not fueling that us versus them dichotomy. I'm not feeling that energy. I am a protector who is just for life and for health and for, uh, you know, the happiness of, of, of all beings. And, and since then, I've kind of like, you know, to my own satisfaction, regarded my songs as protection songs in the understanding that they then like protest songs, but they're crucially not protest songs, that they also, I, I give them, or, or they have that, that same distinction and that same evolution. And, and I think of the song as protection songs. And, and the Shores of Mona, this one in particular, and this whole album are indeed protection songs. So I felt, I feel like so gra- gratitude, like a river of gratitude to, to do this work. And, and, and how do I get so lucky to, to be able to like do something that I really feel matters and um i didn't know what to expect at cop 26 i've never been to a climate conference like this or or any other cop before or um and as an artist i have a lot of feeling around it but i'm not exactly like on the front line of of the new science understandings or technology or, or i'm not always that close to the political process and so kind of you know this was taking me to my edges and i was excited to go and you know for months beforehand i had my networks were buzzing in the UK with, you know, the understanding that, that this, there was going to be this big moment happening in Glasgow. And um, 
obviously Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future like movement and Extinction Rebellion has changed the game in the last two years, you know, so, so the, our understanding of, of the climate crisis is so much more energized and it's obviously really interconnected, inseparable from, from white supremacy and, and global injustices. And it's not, I find this weird thing where everyone's talking about climate and I'm like, but what is, you know, corporate colonialism might be the better. We still haven't quite sort of cracked that nut, but uh, anyway, the emphasis of this, of this conference is climate. And so, I was invited to go up there from a few small small things, but it was when I had an invitation to go and support Aurora. She's a singer from Norway. She's a global pop star. She has she's a vibe. Aurora is amazing from Norway. She, I mean, she's massive in the states, and she's she's a big. She, she just played here in LA uh, this week. She was just playing in LA. Yeah, right. She's a warrior princess, fairy elf from Norway. Super cool. So she was playing a show and I had this, this invite, the proper kind of like presence and, and, uh, and then it was a green light basically. And so that was my main presence there. And that, that gig was, in, that gig was, was remarkable. That was where I, that was the first day I arrived there. I arrived halfway through the cop, it's two weeks long and I arrived on the middle weekend. And the first thing I did was play this show. Uh, I did a panel talk with Aurora as well about, um, and um, people from a, an organization called Music, Music Declares Emergency. That was Faye Milton was on the panel as well. And talking about the role of music in the climate crisis. And yeah, I feel like, because my songs, they feel good and they provide like, they, the, the, particularly these new songs in this album, they, they don't shy away from what we need to talk about, but they, they do it in a way that kind of brings heart. Brings, it, the whole thing is uplifting and, and yet we're in the thing, we're not shying away. So this is, and I felt it was just needed. The people in, you know, the, everyone is exhausted and dismayed. And, and the closer you are to the political process, well, all of us actually, like, feeling despair. So I felt very honoured to be able to come and, and bring this, this, this offering, you know, of these songs and then, and then to speak about. And, and, you know, as you said earlier, like, I, I've learned to start really sharing and explaining and unpacking these songs in the right moments in, on the stage and the energy in the room just, just like, crystallises as, as that happens. And then, yeah, the, the the understanding and the light bulbs popping as I'm singing these songs, and then Aurora came on and did her set. It was really powerful. It was powerful, and and, and if I continue for a second, there was networks that I'm connected to in the UK have, have been kind of these organising indigenous leaders and ceremonial leaders and indigenous people from around the world to come to COP. Friends of mine were connected somehow with with the the Lord with Lord Glasgow, the Earl of Glasgow, and he gave a friend of mine the run of his castle, Kelburn Castle, about forty five minutes outside Glasgow, and uh, generously offered all of the, his rooms. I don't know if there's like 40, 50 rooms and various yurts in the in in this glorious landscape by the coast on the sea, a short drive from Glasgow, and my friend populated the rooms with delegations of indigenous speakers from around the world, many of whom already had a role within the COP, who were already speaking and, and, and giving these vital, desperate offerings, uh, profound offerings within the COP. So I was there staying. I had a room and my, my team, we, we were given space and, and I, I was there in this colorful, kind of like bizarre contradiction of a, of a happening, you know, like with all these people from around the world in this quite kind of, in this old castle, right? This, this colonial kind of like expression or symbol and then all these kind of like change-making, vibey people in this place. And it was a interesting experience, you know, against the backdrop of all these high emotions, 
and this awakening uh, is happening in the land and in us as people to to like to to our land it, it was just quite an intensified accelerated time and i was going to go off on a pilgrimage up to the north of, of of scotland but indeed when i got there i realized i needed to stay in in glasgow and around glasgow where there was so much happening and, and the main thing for me after I'd done this this first gig was about learning and just keeping my ears open and, and I really wanted to just absorb as much as I could while I was there. My sort of point of pride is that I feel like my audience is really, really tuned in and and includes some influential people. And like what you told me that you had heard the show. Yeah. Through Trisha. Like Trisha sent me that one directly. So I and then I found the podcast that way, you know. There is a thread because because the tri- the conversation with Trisha was it, it was with Trisha yeah where maybe you talked about party heels serve yeah there, was it you? yeah no that's one yeah. of my that's one of my bits yeah that really touched me and I, I think that's obviously where our dialogue started but when I heard that I'm sure you 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 felt yourself I was just like that speaks to me and I know that's going to speak to my audience all of whom are, are like in touch to some degree of festival culture and like. First you party, then you heal, then you serve is like a fucking beautiful thing. Yeah, and didn't didn't and, it, it it came into one a, a song lyric for you, yeah? And that's it. And 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 if the song lyric remained party heal serve, then it would be like a gem of a neat story, uh tracing its origins. And I I, I like how that happened. And then Auntie Ivy, who I went to cop with, she's a Maori and Polynesian elder who I've been connected to in the last months, and she's it's just so cool learning from her and like she's here to help people who are anchoring in a new story and it was amazing to roll with her at COP. I've been connected with her on Zooms for about 18 months before I actually met her about five weeks ago in Holland and then and then we did we went to Scotland together but way back then when I was writing the song I was going then I was in the song going to this bit where you sing Party Hill Serve and, she, and I sent her an early demo just I was just jamming with her it's a very this album is a very mycelial piece it's, it's had a lot of a lot of input and she just went love it love the song it's called star nations coming out in january but she said that lyric party it's not right in the context of the song it's not right because it's a bit too frivolous it doesn't feel quite like the right message so she really called me up on that and i explained obviously why i liked it and in the end tweaked it to live he or serve do you know what you are worth in these times of death and rebirth, we live, heal, and serve. Well, you know what's interesting about that is that in the context of this song, which I haven't heard, but I'm getting the flavor in, in, in just in this moment, then live, heal, serve, that, that's right. In the context of life as a festival, party, heal, serve is actually the thing because the frivolity is what brings in someone who otherwise would not be brought in. And that's the value of the festival in certain respects is like, you could look at a festival and say, oh, that's frivolous, Coachella or whatever, it's wasteful. Like it's in this moment, why would we waste our time partying? And celebrate, heal, serve could be a way of saying it. I, I tried exactly that. And it's just too many syllables. Yes. Like, I totally tried yeah. that. But, but even to me, celebrate doesn't capture what party, heal, serve is. Because party is like, we come to party with the consciousness that is longing for the party, to party, to be in that energy. Yeah. And in that moment, we experience, well, why is my life feeling so flat in relation to partying? What's, what's the disconnect there? Why is partying this thing and then my life feels so empty? And then that's when we awaken to the need for the healing. 
And the need for the healing then brings that celebration into our, our lives, where partying evolves into a, a celebration through this community, through participatory events. Whereas partying, it's a, the reason it is that is exactly because it's frivolous, because it needs to bring in people who are in that place in their consciousness where that frivolity is the window. It, they're, they're partying to escape. Yeah. Escaping from what? Escaping from this juggernaut of late-stage capitalism. We've been talking about this whole conversation. That, they're escaping from that through the lens that they most know, which is the party, maybe the club, alcohol, getting, getting blitzed to just get away. But in the right kind of community environment, which a festival can be, and so many festivals are, even if they feel totally commercial, they still have these pockets. Then the, then the awakening to the healing, you know, maybe it's MDMA, they try that the first time, whatever it is, the awakening to the healing. And then that healing process happens. And then the healing process can only take you so far because you're still just looking at yourself. And you're like, wait, why am I, I'm spending all this time healing. Why am I not, why am I not getting there? And it's like, oh, this piece of service, which is really about yeah. community, being in community, in service. And then that can even expand to service to the land. And then the kind of like homecoming that you are really talking about, which is the homecoming to our lineage, to our roots, to deep community, to the land. And then that's the full process. But you need that frivolous window of the party because for some people, yes, that's genius. the only access point. Yeah. Yeah, and I really liked... Just the only thing I could add to that was that I love the three because it pulls some of the sexiness of party because yeah. it's not just frivolous. I mean, Auntie Ivy, in fact, it was very nice at COP because we did actually party with Ivy one night and she, um, she's, she's really like, she's a, she's a big heart, but like a firm teacher and just like no nonsense. I mean, she's fucking hilarious and really warm, but she's quite... And then, but I realized about her, I didn't know her that well. I realized about her that well, actually when she breaks bread, she breaks bread and it was time. And she like, she, she got some drinks and she doesn't drink, she, she drank a little bit, but she got in more for others, you know, and she was laughing and like, it was so fun. So, <clears throat> but in the context of this song, she was just like, uh, uh-uh, it's not the right energy. Kids won't understand. It's not right. But I like it because service without that preceding, too can be a bit like Christian or like make your neighbor a casserole and like which would be lovely but you know a bit kind of like yeah that lacking a bit of sexiness actually and then the party he'll serve it kind of brings it through and it and it and it, it honors because I was coming through basically through Ram Dass's teachers being like okay service right through my own life and my own moments of my own experience of course but like he was explaining it and so I was already switched on to that, but then I really liked that this, this, that phrase is a banger, basically. We're at the place in our conversation where I want to come back to you, where I want to come back to Nick. And big stage, COP26. Your music is being played around the world. You're touching a lot of people. And you've also managed to stay really vulnerable as a man. You know, and and I've felt that deeply. In in we've had a pretty limited connection, you and I. We haven't known each other very long, but I feel your authenticity and your vulnerability. I feel you as a man in your earnestness in the world, and yet you also have this big stage. I really want to applaud you for maintaining both, because you do carry yourself as 
as a real human. You don't, you aren't a rock star in that way. Like you don't have the, the swagger in that way. You have this kind of earnestness. And I think that one of the threads that I've been wanting to keep alive in this conversation is for young artists listening to this and thinking about mm-hmm. you and thinking about how your career has grown and exploded in moments. And yet you've managed to maintain this sense of self that is really transparent and available. And I've heard you say that actually this is part of the magic for you, is that showing up as yourself, showing up as the man that you are, like any of us, is what allows the full power of this music that moves Mm -hmm. through you to actually come through and connect with an audience of friends. And Mm. I just want to land our conversation honoring that. And and I'd love for you to share a little bit about what that experience is like for you, maintaining that authenticity, that transparency, and indeed that humility as your stage grows ever bigger and your impact grows ever bigger. Because I think that that's really a key, that's a key aspect to what is so relatable about you and something for artists and indeed for anyone we all have, you know, social media. We all have ways we're presenting ourselves to the world. But I think that there's something really instructive in the way that you do that. And I'd love to speak a bit about that. Beautiful. I've been doing this a few years and and, and it's, it's a process and a journey. And, and I, I think I, I learn, you know, like everyone, so through mistakes or through not, not being the thing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm flattered as you described that then, but... I don't always recognize myself in how you describe me there because I haven't always been. Because I think anyone who gets up on stage, like when you leave a, an answer message or that kind of thing, like you suddenly like do a version of yourself and you, and you, you know, what is it? It takes a while to get really authentic and comfortable on stage. And, and it did take me a while. And, and, and like, I, I can laugh as I think back to kind of like, yeah, how I used to, how you know, how I was as I was getting to know the, the work and I would be like, basically, you know, exposed and afraid. It's a very vulnerable place and, and like protecting myself. And, and I would like hide away from offering like who I was fully with, with just a full kind of relaxed expression of, of, of myself in that moment. And then I would kind of be quite proud of like, of, of the, the depth of the, of the offering. And then I'd be do like, I'd, I'd kind of like, be proud of, of of stuff I felt was like a higher mind or something laughable like that. But you can see there already the, the beginning of, of the kind of, of the interplay between the, the person, the me, the one who's up on stage, who's afraid, and then the, the higher mind that the, the work comes from and, and is an expression of. And, and I think I, I remember just having some breakthrough moments in 2018. Yeah. 2018. And, and, Basically, ever since then, I think of my live performing journey as, as everything before 2018 and everything after 2018. Because in 2018, for whatever reasons, I just relaxed and I started to get a few things right with like the number of people on stage. I, I had big bands before that, five, six people. And I went back to having a trio. I took out my in-ear monitors and I started to have just like floor monitors. That's a bit of a technical thing, but it was a part of like a bit less technology around me, a bit more just back to kind of playing in a simple way and and then the music started to really click and then from the music really clicking you know everything followed so like i, I felt it was good i felt it was powerful um, I, you know 
and I I then grew in confidence and then with confidence comes relaxation so I would come up on stage and I felt like I could really meet the audience meet the front row probably I have a cheeky little sort of secret connection with the front row and the front few rows and then but like and then totally connect with the whole crowds and the mantra before I go on stage is the front row is my friends the people on the right hand side are my friends the people on the left hand side are my friends people in the middle are my friends the people at the back are my friends people who don't look like they're my friends are my friends you know so just kind of getting into this place of being of what it takes for me to get very relaxed and as I did that I found this interesting development of that kind of dichotomy between the small self and the big self is that like as I relaxed into just being me with whatever my playfulness or my fears were in those, in those moments on stage, um, I started to be more me and I started to, to, ex- to explain the songs, which are often like larger than life, full of great, interesting stories or interesting to me at least and, and, and often quite funny. And so that me, I was turning, I was offering a lot more of myself, being much more generous in, in me. Then, interestingly, when I then went into the song, I was just clearing out and just fully grounding and like fully being this, 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 this channel, this energetic, having this energetic experience where, and I just let, I let the thing really pour through me and, and, and do what the songs are built to do. And I could really get out of the way. So it's just, it's just, it's, I think it's meaningful because it's, uh, it's kind of true to life, isn't it? It's like we, 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 we take this incarnation. We are these bodies. We are these people. I have these tastes these personal histories, these preferences. And I will, I, I am this person and I'm beloved by my friends. And, and that's not to be dismissed. That's to be like honored and lived. And often in the spiritual journey, we kind of like dismiss that because we, we're overly deferent, overly emphasizing the divine and the infinite. And it's just interesting how, as I began to really honor this limited incarnation, then the divinity could really happen and happen more powerfully and I think that's kind of true in, in, in my life and, and yeah that's been a big journey and, and I think yeah I, I love it if there's any young artists listening to that and, and, and can hear that and you know I think I think there would be a, I, I would have liked to have heard that and that, there's a good takeaway there and um, I'm just so excited to get back out and back to it next year um, with this material and and this offering in these times and 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 just for all of that like for the fun of it for the it's such a mad job it's so good yeah yeah i'm excited for it wow nick i really love where we're landing for the end of our conversation here today because it's so relatable you know you don't have to be a rock star to have that interplay between self and between the magic that moves through us And I love what you've just said about, you know, don't be so caught up in that big self, that, that source material, that, that energy, like our little individual humans that we are, are so lovable. They're so lovable. And that's so much part of the artistic process. The process of being a human is like learning to love this quirky, unique expression of the divine that we each happen to be. Like, oh, I want to be that person. You know, I'm a podcaster. I want to be Tim Ferriss or something. You know, I want to be this thing. I want to be that. Yeah. But I don't really. I don't. I don't want their mess of idiosyncrasies. I've 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 made a home in mine. <laughs> you know? Like, right. You know, like I like and. You know, and that shown through when I saw you perform recently in Ibiza. I think there was a moment where you 
missed a, missed a, the start of a song or there was something you missed and your response was so effortlessly endearing that it was one of these moments where there was a little little error of whatever kind but then this kind of effortlessly endearing moment of authentic self that then as an audience we just lean in and we're like oh now we're we're here with you and and you're like us yeah. and and these mistakes are actually they're, they're they're playful traps into a dance if you choose them to be and that really that is a really beautiful skill in that and a beautiful lesson yeah, it's just about being real, isn't it? It's about being real and it's about, yeah, it, it, you know, someone I admire here on the island yesterday just said, you know, spirituality is done. I thought it was like an, an interesting, interesting thing to say, you know, just, just as we really move into like, being ourselves and, and, and being here and, and then, and then like, rolling our sleeves up and, and getting busy with there's no time you know i mean being at cop 26 was was astonishing to actually really contend in a whole another level I, i'm an environmentalist in some ways but like it's so easy for us to not look and to 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 avoid this reality that we are heading towards an uninhabitable world not in some distant kind of 40 years or something you know it's, it's yeah it's really it's really something to uh, to contend with and and so everything is asking us to get real and from from those kind of more urgent urgent points but also just for the from the sort of like how we connect is through realness and from the enjoyment of life and from the enjoyment of of those sweet moments like yeah like it's a good example for getting a lyric in a gig like they're always great moments those you know because they're really doorways to connect through you know and and so yeah, it's time for realness, I think. Well, thank you for setting that example, Nick, and for being so real with me. I, I loved our drop-in when we went on that hike, and I love how real and vulnerable you are on and off stage and, and generous mm. with your time today, sharing these beautiful insights with me and, and with our audience. And I think that this show is about living your life like a festival, and I think what's so great about being in the environment of a festival. It's, it's permission to be real. It's permission to be mm. in play. It's permission to be alive. And I see you as really exemplifying that while not shirking the work that's here for us to do. You know, it's both playful, alive, having fun, and, and bringing that energy into the protector well, role as well. Don't make me the pinnacle of good, Eamon. But I'm I am. Not, I'm not. I am. I'm not. I'm just. I'm just saying. I like you. I'm not. Uh, you know. You don't have. It's. You are not responsible for the enormity of the world's grief, Nick. You are not. I will not put. Oh, that on you. I'm glad. Phew. Lucky. Lucky me, mate. It's. It's been absolute pleasure to share with you and to, to just chew the fat like we did on that hike. And I'm really glad we made the time now. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for your music and thanks for showing up and, and being yourself. And as we all are invited to do and we all do to the best of our ability. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Enjoy your day, man. Lovely to spend time with you, dude. Take care, my friend. Nice one, man. Bye now. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. 
If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.